This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. Today I'm talking to Arthur Phillips about his latest book called The King at the Edge of the World. It's a historical novel uh, which takes place in and around the late 16th, early 17th century in England. And I have to say, this is a book I really, really liked. I think it is a wonderful book. So, Arthur, I'm really happy to uh-huh. talk to you about this. Well, now I'm happy to talk about it, too, before I was all nervous. <laughs> yeah. now it's be a big, big now, I only talk about books that I like, but I, I really, really like this book um, more than most books. And, I, you know, I, I love historical novels. I am not, you know, like some people really love reading the, you know, I think the 16th and 17th century in England are uh, very fertile ground for historical fiction. Um, but this, I, I don't read those books usually. I, I think for me, this was unusual. But, you know, because one is familiar or most, a lot of us are familiar with some of the, stories of that period, um, I think that helps make this um, so rich to read as fiction. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what got you interested? In, well, we should probably talk a little bit and, and maybe give a little background before we, so people who are listening know what we're talking about. But you, you're, yeah. what you, you maybe you want to just sort of set up the uh, beginning of the book uh, because we don't want to give away very much. Uh, but kind of the placement and you know what what begins, what happens. Sure. Uh, so it, the book is set in the beginning in 1591, um, and I to, to give a very general framework, it's it's an Elizabethan espionage story. Um, to give a little more framework, um, it is about a time and a place. You're absolutely right; has been it's rich territory, but it's also been well trod upon for historical fiction. The Tudors and the Stuarts are, I don't know, probably got to be one of the top ten historical fiction locations and times. So this is a little bit of a different take on that time period. It is the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign, and um, it's set in a time when uh, there was essentially a war on terror um, and a war on terror a lot like our own in which religious extremists were training in camps overseas to infiltrate the homeland um, uh, at the, uh, and would welcome being martyred for the opportunity to uh, strike a blow against the satanic establishment and to team up with um, citizens whose loyalty was up for question. And so the intelligence agencies were tasked to, uh, in this case actually were invented, uh, to to root out the insurgency both at home and abroad. Um, And those parallels to our war on terror is where the story starts, except of course it wasn't Muslims, it was Catholics. Right. Well, yeah, just to say that that Queen Elizabeth was and England were Protestant, and Scotland, uh, Ireland, France, Spain, all Catholic. Um, so, they, uh, broadly speaking, yeah, broadly speaking, yes. Except it was super variable, and things could change at, right. the, at the death of a monarch. Everything changes. So, but but the the ballpark is exactly that. Yeah. And what's uh, of course interesting is the 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 your setup for this for the storyline has a, um, a a group of Turkish envoys coming from 
the Sultanate of Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, to visit yep. England, this sort of what they consider to be this backwoods, backwards, kind of cold, miserable, poor um, excuse for a kingdom. And so they they go there by boat, you know, long trip across many, uh, you know, many um, uh, uh, bodies of water to get to England. And then one of the people who is in that group is your main character. Exactly. Who, who's, uh, I want to make sure I pronounce it correctly, Mahmoud Ezzedine. <laughs> Mahmoud Ezzedine, exactly. Yes. So, um, so, yeah, one of the things about uh, Tudor England and Elizabethan England historical fiction, of course, is it's always presented as the jeweled center of all the action. Um, uh, but from some points of view, and specifically from, from Asian points of view, it wasn't. Um, it was... It was, as the title suggests, really the edge of the world, the edge of the civilized world, and a very small matter to deal with England. So the Ottoman Empire, what's now Turkey, um, which had been in existence for centuries and would be in existence for centuries after, sends an embassy to Elizabeth to discuss very uh, prosaic things, you know, a trade deal and and diplomatic relations and ongoing protections for citizens and just the nuts and bolts of, of preliminary diplomacy. And that is, that is where the story starts when one of those, the members of that embassy finds himself in England uh, in circumstances that get rapidly out of control for him. Right. Circumstances beyond his control, to say the least. He's caught up in this um, um, English uh, political uh, situation that he has to try to navigate. And I, I love that you have him, you know, this whole idea of the, um, uh, you know, essentially the other in a place at that time, which was probably, which was quite unused to having um, people from places as far, I mean, you would, you just would not see normally a Turkish person walking around England. Right. Exactly right. It's, it's, I did some research. There's a professor at the University of Minnesota named Nabil Matar, who's done a lot of work on Islam in early modern England um, and and uh, Islamic, essentially diplomats and tourists, and what they made of Europe um, starting in about you know the the 1500s. Um, and there weren't very many of them, to say the least. And the ones that were there tended to be people of great, um, well, two two types. One is High, very high status people coming as diplomats or wealthy tourists, or people who were essentially kidnapped. Um, you know, sailors. You know, one man's uh, sailor is another man's pirate. Um, and Francis Drake and others would capture Algerian ships and Ottoman ships and hold those sailors for ransom. So you would have Muslims stuck in England because they were essentially imprisoned waiting for someone to send money to let them go home. Um, but aside from that, the, the character in this book is essentially for all, for all practical purposes, at some point, the only Muslim in, in the British Isles. Right. And he's a very well-educated doctor. So he has a, a very different status um, and kind of ability to, I mean, he's used to being a doctor to the, um, the Ottoman Sultan. So he's very um, intelligent, uh, knowledgeable, you know, kind of uh, um, capable of navigating 
complex social environments. Although he, as you have him, is kind of naive about some of the uh, the ways that people uh, interact. You know, he doesn't quite. He's so naive that he doesn't really fully understand what's happening to him all the time. Well, he doesn't have at the beginning. He doesn't have perfect English. Things move very quickly. Uh, he doesn't understand jokes and who's taking them seriously and not. He doesn't understand what the um, what the meanings are in court behind certain people looking in certain directions or or granting or denying certain wishes. There's all these things that you know you would have to study for years at court to make sure you were on the absolute inside of events. He's plopped down in this as a foreigner, um, as a foreigner who also, with some small, well, with some justification and maybe some arrogance, looks down on England. And I think that was one of the fun parts of this story was that the narrator, when not the narrator, the main character of an Elizabethan story thinks Elizabethan England is a dump, um, uh, which you don't usually get, I think, when you when you look at Elizabethan historical fiction. Um, he's he's come from a place that he feels, with some justification, is more sophisticated, wealthier, more powerful, um, and he finds the English somewhat silly in what in what animates them and what they well, how little they know about certain things that to him, as a doctor, matter a great deal, specifically medicine. Right. So, and he's also interested in. Um, research and knowledge and understanding how th- you know how different herbs or medic you know medical properties of plants and he studies rabbits and how they behave under the influence of certain you know of of medicines and th- he's a really interesting guy. I thought he was a and as you ha- I don't think it's giving away too much that as he at one point. Uh, kind of becomes more English, um, uh, converts to Protestantism, and then has this other identity um, where you take him through this long period of time in which he is in England. Um, and I think one of the things I thought a lot about was in if you think about, let's say, 1600 or so, the uh, length of time it took to travel places, the amount of time you would be gone if you went on a journey like this, and then the accident that would prevent you from potentially ever seeing your home again, um, you know, as you have with the, you know, the pirate sailors who end up in jail and never get to go home. You know, some of these uh, sailors just on a regular um, engagement, they'd be away from home for one year, two years, could be three years. They could end up being never coming home. So a lot of this disruption of life is really striking when you think about it compared to we feel like we have more control over our daily lives. We don't have to spend, you know, six months to go visit somebody in the north of England um, and then potentially never come home again. So I, I just, that, that, it, that's I know part and parcel of life almost 500 years ago, but it still was very striking how it changes the way you think about daily life. Absolutely, and the speed of communication, of course. You know, the fastest communication could move was a horse. Right. Um, when when you remember that a horse is literally the fastest way to get a message to anybody, uh, it really, especially as you're trying to think of a of a of a spy story. And what, what would make a spy story feel like a spy story and feel exciting and thrilling like a spy story when you realize information can't move any faster than, the, than a fresh horse? Um, and the idea that you're trying to communicate with another, you know, the, the far side of another continent 
I'd like to get a message to somebody in Turkey about what's happened to me. Um, you start to realize how isolated everybody really is in a very small community. Right. And that this, the, you know, the notion of the world being, we think of the world as a fairly small place because communications are instantaneous. And they, for the people of this time, and I think the spy story is really important and really interesting. Um, you know, I, I had just last year read um, a history of essentially intelligence written by a British scholar. Mm -hmm. And he talked about Walsingham, who is a key, you know, key character in your book, Walsingham essentially is the inventor of um, Western modern spycraft. And many of the things that he did, one of the things this book talked about is that what Walsingham invented was subsequently forgotten because it was it kind of died with him. A lot of his methods, a lot of his ideas, they kept things so secret. There was no record recording of many of his activities, the things that he learned, the things that he um, invented, um, were had mm-hmm. to be reinvented, you know, kind of repeatedly by anyone who wanted to start a spy ring. They would have to start over again and learn, relearn everything that he had either invented or learned. It's very interesting. There was, and when he died, one of his deputies attempted to write uh, a, a how-to manual um, uh, based on what he had seen Walsingham invent. And he assumed that whoever took over the job after Walsingham's death, whoever ran the English Secret Service, such as it was, would need this guidebook. And as far as historians can tell, nobody ever read it. Exactly, exactly. I think it's just an amazing story. And he was obviously brilliant. And I think part of what, you know, it's kind of wrapped up in everything that you you wrote about him and also the people that worked for him, the levels of deception and the compartmentalization of information were very important um, principles. And, mm-hmm. you know, you would think that you were doing one thing, but you might have been doing something else in service yeah. of, uh, of w- w- you know, you could be a decept, you could be a part of a deception. And they- it was important to Walsingham that you did not realize your role so that you could essentially exactly. play it. And then you, you actually link that up to the whole notion of theater at that time, which was also yeah. a very active, um, uh, uh, kind of, uh, fact of London life, and you've got a couple of actors, playwrights mentioned in the book too, who um, you kind of um, connect theater and spycraft, which is really interesting. Well, what I find so fascinating about the period is that I, you know, I don't, I didn't really connect them at all. They were invented, just as you said, Walsingham was inventing intelligence agencies. They were invented at the same time. Uh, the theater the entertainment industry as we know it was essentially being invented down the street from Walsingham. And from practically the first day of these two institutions being organized, they worked together. Walsingham very consciously realized he needed people who could, uh, let's see, speak many languages, who could um, pass easily from low life to high life, who could improvise, who could... um, uh, pretend to be somebody that they weren't and who could plot the verb to plot had both meanings right away. And, uh, it meant that the same person who could lay out a play could also lay out a plan for, for how to infiltrate a group, 
um, what a backstory or a cover story would look like, um, could think through the stages necessary to get information out the other end. So these two industries, theater and intelligence, were interlocked from the very beginning and the same people were were moving back and forth between the two. Right. I think that's really interesting. That's very kind of profound in a certain way that intelligence requires a knowledge, an innate knowledge of um, psychology in the same way that storytelling does. Absolutely. Uh, I'm working on a separate project. So uh, something that came out of researching for this book was I'd read enough about that that exact topic that I was quite enamored of. And I'm working on uh, developing a TV series right now about the man who was, who's sort of uh, the, the greatest example of, of the interplay between those two worlds, who was Christopher Marlowe, um, who was uh, an extremely successful playwright, exactly Shakespeare's age, but, very, but viewed as Shakespeare's superior, even by Shakespeare for a while, um, and who was very, very closely wrapped up in intelligence operations from the time he was an undergraduate uh, in college. Um, so the interplay of the two worlds is, is to me, the, maybe the most fascinating aspect of the, of the universe that the book is set in. Yeah, I think there's uh, an element of that in the uh, modern version of the modern CIA, which was originally started as the OSS, where many of mm-hmm. the uh, many of the members were, um, uh, you know, they were recruited from Yale and other uh, Ivy League colleges, partly because of their literary and um, psych- yep. psychological, you know, their background in literature and the humanities was more important yep. than that they were in some way, uh, you know, military in their in their outlook. Mm-hmm. So you and have- and so much of the charm of all those great spy stories is is watching men and women of of creative and theatrical bent toying with the appearances of something to to get to something else. Right. Uh, you know the uh, what was that? history a couple years ago, Operation Mincemeat, uh, a few years ago, a, a true story from the Second World War in which British intelligence basically uh, dressed up a corpse, uh, stuffed his pockets with false information and dropped him in the ocean where they hoped the Germans would find him. <laughs> and sure enough, the Germans found him <laughs> and, and, and read his, his, this false secrets in his pockets with great interest, delighted that they had happened to stumble upon a dead courier as far as they thought. And, and some battle got, you know, was affected as a result. Um, uh, one of the things about Walsingham that I find especially interesting, as you were saying before, you know, you didn't know what role exactly you played in these deceptions. And again, somewhat in parallel with our own current uh, intelligence uh, successes and shenanigans, is that it was it was somewhat hard to tell with with Walsingham whether he infiltrated. Uh, a you know an insurgent plot caught everybody and rounded it up and diffused it, or if he sent provocateurs out to see if anything was going on, and their mere act of looking seemed to create figments of um, conspiracy where there maybe wouldn't have been one otherwise. Um, and it's sometimes hard to tell with Wozniak whether he was catching the bad guys or creating the bad guys and then catching them. Right, which kind of falls, that certainly mirrors what we worry about and think about 
today in that in mm-hmm. and that certainly did happen during the 1960s early 70s with the FBI's Cointelpro um where I they think so. they they oh I think it's documented that they sent yeah. people out uh, you know the whole idea of agent provocateurs but it's more complicated yep. than that that by being part of the consp- you know whatever group they were in they encouraged things to happen that might as you just suggested might not have otherwise happened uh which is yeah. sort of you know but it also that suits the needs of the of the power behind the uh, the the tracking of the conspirators, which is there has to be a conspiracy if you're going to maintain your position of power as a pursuer of them. Exactly. Otherwise, why, what are you spending all this parliamentary money for? That's right. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's very true. So um, I had you know it's so it is so funny when I read this, I was thinking very much of the story and the place, and I didn't draw the comparison between. The um, you know the current world of war, war on terror, but it is actually kind of evident that this was uh, an early example of what probably has been going on ever since. May have been going on before. I think you know on a certain level. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, you, I think it makes, that's exactly right. I, yeah, go ahead. I, I was yeah. I was I, no. I'm sorry. I was going to say it, it. I think that's exactly the case that. This invention of Walsingham's, the invention of simultaneously a, a foreign intelligence service and a domestic security service, was in response to a real threat. I mean, for all the agent provocateur stuff, there was a real threat. There are foreign countries who are trying to invade you and destroy you. There are domestic citizens of the country who are disloyal and wish to, through through assassination and uh, rebellion, overthrow the established order, and there are uh, English people and foreigners abroad training to come and commit terrorist acts inside the homeland. So all those things are real. And the idea that he, um, he and so he was, and he'd seen the worst of it. He he was absolutely radicalized, if he hadn't already been, by what he saw. He was the uh, English ambassador in Paris right. in 1572, and he saw the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which was, which would have put anybody off uh, which would have convinced you that that there was a real dangerous threat of really crazy, violent people coming. So he went home knowing who his enemy was, and he would do anything it took to to track them, trap them, and kill them. Um, but as soon as he made this invention, the intelligence agency and the security agency, all of the complexity and moral compromises and difficulties that we have had with our own and everybody has had with their intelligence services came into play almost immediately. Um, how much of what we are doing, are we catching bad guys and how much of it is we're causing problems and then catching them when we catch the bad guys, should we torture them? Because if we torture them, we're not sure about the value of the information we're getting. Um, should we kill them? Because it seems like that seems to cause more bad guys to be created because they're mad at us for killing the previous batch. Is <laughs> Uh, everything, uh, you know, are the intelligence services all automatically good guys just because they're working on our account or we know we have to hire some sort of tough guys that we wouldn't otherwise want to be our friends to get some of this dirty work done, but our enemies are so dirty. We don't have much choice in the matter. And suddenly the parallels become uncanny as if the mere act of, uh, secret warfare 
or or not even warfare, secret intelligence, um, or merely the fact that you have enemies, immediately causes this this moral uh, conundrum and this this blurry um, this you know to, to to steal a great phrase from another era, this wilderness of mirrors in which you can't quite tell whether the people working for you are working in your best interest or not. Right. So all of those things occurred almost immediately in the 16th century. And I wonder, I guess it makes you think, okay, is this something that is unique to our time, unique to you know the last several hundred years of human history, or is this actually something that is not new? That in fact, at any time when people were uh, use, I mean, did, did humans use deception in and secrecy and um, kind of under underhanded methods like this throughout our history? You know, we don't know. Uh, a lot of that would uh, be yeah, recorded. I mean, by definition, a lot of it is secret, and yet it seems almost unquestionably certain that we have. Um, there was a there was a history of intelligence several years ago called the second oldest profession, um, and that seems entirely likely <laughs> that as soon as people could figure out that somebody was not uh, on their side, you wanted to know what they were doing and what they were thinking and what they're up to. Right. Um, and you might have felt more confident the answer if, if you couldn't see the answer yourself if you paid someone to find out for you. So I'm sure it's been there in, in every element of every uh, historical interaction. Yeah, I think it makes well. It, it, in as much as what you said uh, earlier, that as soon as this uh, kind of secret uh, method or secret system begins, you kind of uh, are faced with the moral dilemmas, the moral ambiguities. That tends to make you think that it's a human nature um, uh, uh, kind of circumstance, rather than a situational one that's unique to any particular time or place. Yeah, I think that's probably true, and they. There is, and then when you get past that, there is a certain national expression that comes out in the differences between the the intelligence services. The, far, the farther you get into them, there is something, there is something American about the CIA that is different than the way, uh, well, certainly than the way you know the FSB or KGB are Russian or Soviet, but even different than the way the SIS or MI6 is English. Different in how they, in how they act, different in where the moral lines sometimes get laid. Um, I, I don't know. I find that also a, sort of a fascinating sub-story in all of this, that it is human, but it also becomes cultural. Yeah. No, I think that's uh, true. In a, in a way. Yeah. Have, yeah. You, have you read um, Alan First's novels, um, all of which? Take, I love them. Yeah, yeah, me too. I've read all but the last one. I haven't gotten to that one yet, but I think that's now 14 of them that he's written. And they're just, um, I think he captures that the difference between the, the different countries different cultures. I, I think he captures that really well. And yet there is also that kind of um, continuity of how people behave in circumstances that are similar. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So w what got you interested in this particular time and place? What got you to write this era? Um, well, I think two things happened simultaneously. So sometimes the, the Sometimes the answer to these, so this is my sixth novel, and sometimes the answer to the question, what, you know, what was it that got you into this particular novel, is not necessarily very recognizable or very logical um, uh, when, the, when the book is finished. So in this particular case, at some, for some reason which I cannot pinpoint, 
the thought occurred to me, um, the intelligence mission that the that the Turkish doctor we were talking about, the intelligence mission he has sent on um, is to find out a piece of information that uh, there really is no plausible way to find out. And there's no plausible way to know whether he's gotten to the bottom of it. And yet it's urgent that he finds out this, the answer to this question. And, and, and the, the idea, how would you find out definitively the answer to a question that, um, that somebody could just lie about and that they have every incentive to lie about? Uh, how would you ever know that you'd gotten to the end of that question? And that as a, as a sort of generic um, spy problem really somehow got under my skin. I'm not quite sure when or how. Um, and then it's soon attached to the historical details of at this time, which I happen to have been reading about a little bit because my previous book in, in a small part is set in, in the same time in Elizabethan England. And so uh, there is no good answer to the question, how did this, ha- <laughs> how did this book happen? Other than I thought of a, I thought of an impossible spy story that really appealed to me and it seemed to fit in this era. Um, and then pieces, to, you know, then you start building a snowman and right. it takes a couple of years. Well, I will tell you that the, at the end, which we're not going to give away, but I can say was brilliantly put together. I think you saw, you know, you created a problem, you solved the problem, you made it impossible for the reader to anticipate what was going to happen or to come uh, to, to uh, even understand as you're getting to the point um, where things become clear, you didn't even realize it was happening. And that is part of what makes this book so good is that it's, you know, I, I always feel like, you know, the, when I see a, a, a television show or a movie or I read a book where I can see the clockmaker's uh, springs in action, you know, then I know it's a problem. Um, when I <laughs> when I don't even know that there was a clockmaker at work, you know, as they, they say about good design is the design you never notice. Um, I feel that way about a book, about the writing uh, and a plot where the story um, is just uh, the story that you're completely engaged in without realizing where it's going or what's going to happen. Perfect. <laughs> well, thank so, you. I will, I will take that with great, great pride. Thank you. <laughs> I thought it was terrific. Well, I really, I'm, and I'll look forward to reading another. This is, you know, I've read several of your books. This is the second time we've talked, although it's been 11 years in between times. Um, but I really enjoy your writing and um, I'm really thank glad you. that we got a chance to talk. So thank you, Arthur. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure. This has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk, your host. Today I've been talking to Arthur Phillips about his novel, The King at the Edge of the World. Mm-hmm.